Hey friends, welcome to the all new version of Napcast, a podcast co-hosted and produced by Nick and Mike, two male early childhood educators of color. What is this all about? Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever uttered the words, I just want to listen and learn more? Then hey, you've come to the right place. This podcast is all about taking risks, leaning into your imagination, and, well, being as curious as we are about how we can dismantle racism, sexism, and all the ism in our early learning environments. Oh, and this is also a place where we can kind of sort of just get weird with it. Together, we'll listen to insights and feedback from various educators of color working with our world's youngest citizen in direct and indirect ways. Oh, just the thought of that should send chills down your spine. So, are you ready? Did you turn your headphones up? All right now. Good. Let's get it. For this episode, you're listening to a keynote that we gave to our friends at the Los Angeles Community College District. Many thanks to LaShawn, the department chair at Los Angeles Southwest College, Nair and Jacqueline for the invitation and for letting us use this to share out with our listeners. So welcome everybody, you're in for a treat. All right, I think that was our cue, right? Okay, cool, 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 cool. What up, y'all? It is it's good to be in community with you all. I apologize for this lighting. I don't know what the heck is going on right now. So I'm like, well, um, but don't worry. We're we still going to rock out. And I am uh, grateful to be here. I almost said that in Spanish. I'm grateful to be here. My name is Mike Brown. Pronouns are he, him. I am, uh, I don't even know what my title is. I think it's because of this Las Vegas heat that I'm in right now that I'm like, okay, I was I was about to pull a little bit. Uh, I'm not gonna lie. I was doing a little type of little emails, some little, little some some. But we are we are here and we are great to be grateful to be here. Once again, my name is Dwight Brown. I'm the Senior Director of Community Engagement for Cultivate Learning at the University of Washington. And I'm joined by, I don't know, I usually give you a title, Nick. Um, yeah, I usually have something quippy to say. My it's it's the heat, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, hi, everyone. Like Mike said, it's an honor and um, definitely our pleasure to be in community with you all. My name is Nick Terronis or Nick Terronis. Um, and my pronouns are he, him. And I come to you from the traditional lands of the Duwamish people, uh, now known by colonizers as Seattle, Washington. Um, and Mike, I think we wanted a do a little land acknowledgement. Did you want to start first? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, when we think about land acknowledgements, right, it, I always wonder, I always think about how do we, how do, we um, do more than just say words, right? Anyone can just say words, but how are we actually living out those values? How are we actually putting, especially as BIPOCs, especially because I'm Afro-Caribbean. So, you know what I mean? I'm trying to be in partnership in community with with my, my Latinx, my indigenous brothers, sisters, and two spirits. So what can I actually do to do more than just say words on the cool check, right? Because I know how that feels when we do a checkbox mentality. 
um, in our lives, especially to the Black community. So why would I then do that in return to my Indigenous brothers and sisters? So that's, that's something that I want us to wrap our minds around, especially if you're not familiar with land acknowledgement, like learn more about what does that mean? How do you actually live out those values? And then how do you align your thoughts with your words, your words with your values, your values with your actions, so that we can create systemic change, right? Because I'm not, in, I'm not interested in incremental change. I'm trying to blow up the damn system. Yeah, and you know, I would like to, especially for all of you there in, in Los Angeles, which um, I was sharing with your leaders here, um, that I'm originally from from the San Fernando Valley, uh, Silmar specifically, and you know, the people's land that that you all are all currently on right now belong traditionally to my my people, the Chumash, as well as the Tongva, Tataviam, Luiseño. Um, many tribes down there, but those were your particular ones in that particular, in that land. And I encourage you all to, you know, dive a little deeper and get to know those people and get to know their culture and their stories um, and invest into their projects that are currently going on, especially the Chumash down in, um, in, uh, up, um, in Santa Barbara. So a little more North of you all, but, um, but also down in Malibu. Um, and, you know, I would like to acknowledge that kind of like Mike was saying that the land we occupy as guests and settlers, we must move beyond just conscious clearing task that a land acknowledgement is, you know, we have to think of what can we do um, beyond a land acknowledgement that is an authentic call to action. And, you know, generally land acknowledgements do not strive to do not strive for a process of reconciliation. So when you do hear a land acknowledgement, consider what you can do as a next step. And, and, you know, one of those first steps is just learning about the people, becoming familiar with the story, like I had mentioned. And, you know, I like to always tell people that um, the land hears your acknowledgement and it wants to be given back. And while we might not be able to have that within our power to give land back to the first people that were here, um, there are ways that we can honor them in their existence because they are still here, they are still thriving, and they are still contributing to society. And that's what this that's what this workshop conversation is about today, right? We we thought, oh, should we do like a PowerPoint? And we're like, nah, that's not us, right? If we're gonna come and we're gonna be authentic, right? Let's do what we do best and let's do storytelling because that's in our blood. Right. And everything that we do as early childhood educators revolves around a story. So as you listen, as you actively listen today, and, and we like to think about like peeling back that onion, right? Think about what, what activates in you, right? What resonates with you? There's gonna be some things that we say there. We're gonna call out white supremacy, right? We're gonna call it like we gonna call it what it is, right? And people are like, oh my God, that's so hurtful. But do you know what's really hurtful, y'all? White supremacy. <laughs> like so we're not gonna we're not gonna put comfort ahead of our reality today. So I there's there's a little button on the on your body your screen called leave. So if you're not ready to rock out with us, you already know what to do. Right? And I'm always looking at like who actually who actually gonna press that button first. We got 50 people on this call, so I'm gonna be I'm gonna be watching. Um, <laughs> so let's let's just jump right into it. Nick, you ready? Let's do it. All right. So resistance, right? Resistance is, is in our blood and it shows up in, in what I call the pedagogy of no, 
like Nick, you've said no a million times. I think I've heard you say no more than toddlers, right? <laughs> yeah, that's who I learned it from. <laughs> there you go. You've been like, yo, no, I'm not gonna um, be subjugated to the rules of engagement, to the ideas of, of what it means to be an educator, to what the system wants me to do as a director. I'm gonna say no to that. I heard you say that. You know, and I've said no to uh, a plethora of things to, to being quiet, right? And I'm from the East Coast, so that, that's not going to happen, right? But I say no to being quiet around structural inequities in our system. No, I will not settle for incremental change when we can blow up the whole damn system, like I said. And we have both said no to, to the face of resistance to being males in ECE. So, you know what I mean? Come on, let's, let's jump into this. Talk to me about... Uh, I guess a journey of finding your voice and that refusal to be shushed or pigeonholed into certain boxes. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, you named it at the top there uh, about me saying no a lot <laughs> and maybe even asking why a lot. Um, those are two important things that I learned from young children, right? And, and you know me, Mike, I, I think I'm a contrarian by nature. You tell me to do or not to do something and I'll do the exact opposite. And, and I think this is why I'm severely drawn to punk and heavy metal music. You know, it's just sort of in my, in my ethos to, um, to, to, to march by the beat of my own drum, you know, and in that sort of beat and that rhythm that I cultivate within myself, I find complementary beats, if you will, that orchestrate like a stronger sense of who I am. So like, you know, being in community with you, Mike, being in community with all these people, albeit, you know, via Zoom, but these are different rhythms that I find synced up that give me that extra, that umph, you know, that, um, that fire to keep on going. Um, and it's something that, that has been, you know, that all, all, all of these walks of life have done for me. And other times it's been experiences. Um, you know, I've shared, I think I shared this story on a napcast and, um, and, and my brother is okay with me sharing it. Uh, but when I have peeled back my own personal onion and going through the layers of like, why am I here? Why have I continued to be here in early childhood education um, going past 15 years now coming up on 16? Um, I, the root of it is the, my brother's experience in early childhood education, my younger brother. And he was physically abused by a teacher um, for being three years old, essentially. Um, he, he, a, a teacher, um, you know, lost their cool and like threw him up against a, a wall. And, uh, and he, you know, had some bruises and some lumps, but nothing like a severe injury, but the trauma of that sustained throughout his rest of his academic sort of life and his whole uh, view, uh, or, um, view and perception of education and adults and teachers especially was severely skewed um, as people who were out to get him. And so early on in that moment, I saw the connection between an early experience and the outcomes of what could happen for an individual. And then, you know, beyond that, um, on, on another personal level, I had always had an affinity for school. And early on, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. And, and, and witnessing what my brother went through really solidified that to me when I was like nine, 10 years old. And 
um, you know, it started off like, okay, I want to be like a high school teacher and then like a middle school teacher, and then like fourth grade. And the grades just kept going uh, younger and younger and younger until I found my draw to being with toddlers. And, you know, it was, um, and, and it was interesting because as uh, I would tell people like, this is what I want to do, you know, I would always get, well, you're not going to make much money that way. Right. But you can always be a principal. You can always climb the ladder and you'll be fine. But then I would hear a lot of my female friends who also wanted to be teachers and people would say, oh, you would make such a great teacher. You just have that something that children would listen to. And and even early on, those stark differences in answers like really irritated me, even at a young age. And, and finding my voice was something that took a long time. You know, and I still feel like I'm finding my voice and maybe I found my voice, but now I'm like um, reframing and refining it as I go along. Oh, it looks like someone's not on mute. Be sure to mute yourselves. Thank oh, yeah. you. <laughs> um, but, you know, as I as I've sort of gone along with this and refined and reframed my voice, I found that teacher identity. And what I've come to hone in on is that teachers and teachers who do want to, Oh, there we go. Don't forget to mute yourself. Um, that a lot of us, we want to help people. We have this natural inclination to help people. And in that a lot of teachers are servant leaders at heart. You know, we want to do good by people, regardless of praise, money, recognition. It's just who we are. And for all of you all on this call, that's what you all all, all are. You know, you are all leaders, um, especially those of you in the classroom or those of you that do want to be in the classroom. Um, you are doing that work. You are creating those foundations for early life experiences and learning. And, and to me, that is like the essential, the, the essence of leadership. And in addition, you know, I've come to learn a part of my voice and my being as an educator is that being an educator is a lifestyle. It's not a job. And I, I feel like this is something that parallels being a musician, a painter, a scientist, or whatever it may be. It's something that's always on your mind. You know, educators are generally their own harshest critics. Uh, we're always looking to do better and build upon ourselves to just keep getting better. And, and, um, and kind of like, like Mike, you, you've mentioned in other talks that like, you know, if you're, if your heart and soul kind of isn't in this and you're here for a paycheck, like you can get a paycheck anywhere else, you know, go, go do something else. But if this is going to be your lifestyle and this is how you're going to be, then, then be in this field. And when you are, embrace the fact that you are a leader in this. Damn, man, I was going to use that line later. Okay, nah, it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're right. Like, it's two things came up to me for me when you were talking because I think about how gendered and how racialized our messages are in ECE, right? It's not just necessarily about. Um, you know, putting up a book or and talking about it and talking about, you know, uh, all the things in your curriculum and things. It's, it's how you talk about things, right? Like you say all the time, or what you used to say, and then we, we've worked on this, but how many times do we as educators go, hey, go get that little guy over there? 
Oh, oh, that boat, oh, isn't he a beauty? Like, it's a boat. What are we talking about? And children absorb those things. They go, oh, well, I, I have to call it like this, or, or I have to think about it like that. And then that creates, a, that doubles down on the inequities because we already know they're, they're facing all of this, you know, things that they're getting in the media, that they're getting at home, that they're getting in the community. We're the only place where we might be giving them the counter narrative to the master narrative. And not everything has to, to look or say or be like that. So I, I love that. I love the fact that we're, we're really have to be intentional in not just what we do, but how we show up in the world, because there's no other place that they're going to get that information from. And I said those two things, but I already forgot, right? right. <laughs> um, I, was at a, I was at a wedding um, with my fam like two weeks ago, I'm, I'm racking up these miles, y'all, you know, I'm telling you, um, I'm like, I can work from home, oh, I can, all right, I'm gonna go over here, um, so I was at a wedding with my fam in Florida last week, or two weeks ago, and I remember telling, like, my mom, no, and then I was like, oh, man, I got a duck, because, you know, you don't say no to, to first of all, you don't say no to elders, not in my community, so I was like, yo, World War Three about to happen, I don't know what's going to happen, and was she upset? Hell yeah, she was upset. Um, and then later on, when we were sharing drinks with, you know, my sister, um, my aunt, you know, uh, she was saying how proud she was of me. And I was like, this is the same lady? I was like, mom, I've never heard you say that. But she was saying it, despite all the people who said, um, yo, Mike is too dumb. Mike is too poor. And then I was like, okay, now, now that's the mom I know, right? She's, she's, doing that. Um, you know, but she was so proud of the fact that I used my imagination to build a world um, that I wanted to see. Um, a lot of rejection happened over my life around, I don't want to do it like that, or I don't want to be like that. And that small exchange um, at that table really gave me the premise for my upcoming article in Exchange Magazine, which is getting printed in um, June, July. I don't know how these things work. They just tell me when to submit it, and then they submit it. But that premise was how we don't allow black boys to dream. We don't. We don't let black boys dream to use their imagination. So when they tell us that they want to be astronauts, what do we do in return? We tell them, hey, you know, be realistic, y'all. Astronaut, I don't know. I don't see that in you. You know, we tell them instead that they belong to these streets, you know, not in a lab creating the next vaccine. And we are here, right? We, as a collective, we as educators, um, we as Black people are here because of our imagination, right? And it's that imagination that has built the foundation of our spirituality, of our courage, of our conviction. And, and, I think about how often I sit in meetings or I'm, I'm reviewing curriculum and I'm left to wonder, right? Where are we letting our children dream? Our curriculum is littered nowadays with historical figures and non-fictional events that is meant to paint a picture for this child, which absolutely I'm not saying I'm against, right? Um, but where are we just having stories of them existing? Yes, I want them to learn about the Pan-African movement, right? It would be ridiculous if I were to say I didn't want that to happen. 
And I also want them to see themselves dreaming about how monsters live underneath the bed. Go ahead and, go ahead and mute yourself, whoever that is. Somebody just came in. Can you please mute yourself? What a world we live in, um, right? Where are we letting our children dream, right? I want them to see themselves dreaming about the monsters that live underneath the bed. Or, you know, I used to have dreams of the moon coming out to speak to me every night. I was a weird kid, but that's, that's neither here nor there. So, you know, essentially to bring it, um, I was watching SpongeBob earlier today. So to bring it round town, right? To bring it all the way back. Right, my childhood imagination influenced my actions and my thoughts today because black boyhood does not stop. It's out of this imagination that I found my voice. That, and, and because I didn't wanna live in a world that told me what to do, how to think, ways to dress, how to act, what it means to be black, what it means to be a man in this society, right? That imagination also gave me this platform, that confidence, this, permission to resist. And I'm hoping that we in our lives today as adults in ECE, as educators, um, we, we really be intentional in how are we using our imagination in our work. Sure, we might not be directly working with children, but that doesn't mean that we should not use our imagination. Our entire field is built off, built off of that. So how can we use our imagination to resist the inequities happening in our own backyard? And I'm not talking about, right? Because a lot of people are like, well, there's no inequities in my backyard. We're not Florida. I'm not, there's inequities happening in, in you know, so, Southern California, right? Now that I'm there, I can say it, I see it. So how do we do justice to our children, for our children, with our children and our colleagues um, by really valuing their imagination and our imagination and our resistance? You're reminding me, Mike, um, of that saying, uh, what is it? We don't, we don't stop playing because we grow old. We grow old because we stop playing. Right. And, and, and to what you're saying is a lot of the times, and even if we take the simple concept, relatively simple concept of childhood, it becomes this thing that we move out of rather than expanding into our grown adult selves and and when we don't allow our that um that young human version of us to grow with us that imagination to keep going and we keep pigeonholing like you were saying or we keep putting um gender or and in this case age and then race and culturalism into um boxes we limit ourselves severely for things that are possible and when we start limiting ourselves to things that are uh, possible um, or we limit others, uh, we, we start creating these systemic things like um, institutionalized racism, institutionalized sexism and genderism. And it, it, it then becomes a tool for, again, white supremacy to permeate into our culture and continue um, manifesting itself in different versions. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a good segue because uh, white supremacy, right? You know, I love me talking about me some white supremacy, right? And I often say that the greatest marketing plan in the world ever created. When I went to business school, actually, that was my first degree. 
I went to business school. I was like, you see, I don't need to do that. Right. And then I found my way back home. Um, but the greatest marketing plan in the world is white supremacy. Why? Because it attempts to put voices of color against each other. Because if we out here battling against each other, y'all, we won't notice how the system was working against all of us. Right. And, and even though we both have an agenda, you and I, Nick, right? I'm about promoting pro-Black spaces, right? You're about native, native sovereignty. Um, we're really able to transcend that and work towards liberation together. And that is something that- is so I'm awake now. Right? <laughs> you know, we're able to transcend and work towards liberation together. And that's something that I don't think uh, BIPOCs that we have done that well consistently. And even if we, you know, zoom out and think about ECE as a whole, you know, we out here fighting each other for crumbs, you know, in terms of the funding, right? Where I feel like if we were to just pause and stop for a second and breathe, and then we organize, we would realize like, we are the actually the backbone of this economy. And if we were to be like, you know what? Let's let's pause childcare for a day. Let's pause childcare for a week. Man, the whole world was shut down. But I don't want really go want to go down to that rabbit hole because I can we can go into that all day. <laughs> right. I want to go down the rabbit hole of of what I said earlier about liberation, right? Your path and my path towards liberation. You know, mm-hmm. because although it looks differently it actually supports and uplifts like each other's. So can you yeah. talk about that? Uh, I mean, I could try to, <laughs> and you know, um, I, you know me, Mike, I try to look at like trying to see where, where there's civil, silver linings and in, in some things that are happening. And, um, and I think, or I believe that with the whole pandemic over the last couple of years, um, one of the silver linings was, yeah, society was faced with, that fact that like, whoa, early childhood education and education as a whole, but especially early childhood education, like we need that. And we don't just need a place for children to be in a kid corral, you know, where they're just kind of gathered and kept safe, but they need, but all children need and deserve a right to um, high quality uh, as determined by their communities of what high quality is, um, because there's no cookie cutter version of what high quality should be, um, but that all children deserve that right. And the educators in those spaces deserve quality treatment, right, by society as a whole. And, you know, going back to uh, your, your question about uplifting each other's voices and, and the idea of liberation. And it's funny, because when we talk about this, I think of um, the outcast song liberation, uh, and which is one of my favorite songs. And, um, but, and you've heard me say this a few times that, you know, all of us, we're all in the same canoe paddling to those shores of liberation. And if we paddle out of sync, we will never collectively reach those shores of liberation. And so when we work and we are in, in, um, in play and in, uh, experience with each other we must find a rhythm of understanding of each other to sync up to organize like you're saying you know to achieve that authentic liberation i feel like and you know bringing it back to our topic tonight men in ece um i think it's 
for us, importantly, men of color in ECE is we need to understand that this is another um, crucial form of representation to children, right? Oftentimes in early childhood education, we're saying, you know, the environment needs to, to represent the family. It needs to represent um, other uh, X, Y, and Z of the world, but we often leave out the, the sort of gender or, you know me, I don't like to use gender, but um, I guess sex of what you're assigned and, um, and, and, you know, through representation, we get to actively co-construct what it means to be, you know, in, in this particular case, one, what a man is, like you were saying, we get to co-construct what that means to what uh, an educator is in the lives of children. And then three, going into, you know, what do gender roles mean in society anyway? You know, um, and I like this, I like the saying that I've been hearing more in the native community is our existence is our resistance. And so when we think about that as men and men of color in early childhood education spaces, we are resisting a uh, gender role, stereotypical gender roles and cookie, cookie cutter um, prescriptions of how men need to be by existing in these spaces. And when we do that, we uplift our femme identifying colleagues and friends and families. You know, we help their existence, uh, their resistance through another form of existence. We are contributors to breaking that glass ceiling, but it does take um, a little bit of, um, uh, I like the word gumption, <laughs> you know, a little bit of gumption, a little bit of uh, courage, if you will, to step up and to be uncomfortable. And, and a lot of the times men and especially men of color um, are, can be uncomfortable in these places. And it's, you know, I think what you're saying that through this act of resistance, and it's sad really that we have to call it and, you know, that we have to call an authentic pursuit of joy as an act of resistance. It's kind of, I don't know, disheartening to me, but it is what it is. But this is how we achieve liberation. And it's part of that struggle. And, you know, something that has been brought to my mind, Mike, and this is a question for you. Um, you know, I've been asked many a times, and I think you and I have sort of touched on this is what is our role as cis heterosexual men in balancing gender in balancing the gender proportion in early childhood, you know, and I'm thinking about what does that mean about for our trans non-binary gender fluid allies? That is a, that's, that's an amazing question. I, let me, let me sit on that, right? That, that's a, that's a tough and hard question. Um, but I, I do just thinking back to the original question. Also, my boss texted me at the same time. So I was like, what's going on? Um, I was like, am I missing a meeting? But it's too late. So it is what it is. <laughs> um, going back to, to, to the original question, as I try to stall for some time to think about yours, um, <laughs> you know, I think about um, just how I got that, that, that mamba mentality, right? To to try to connect this down to, to LA and y'all folks down there, right? I, I want to win. I hate losing, 
uh, you know, in football, in, in Mario Kart, in, in whatever, right? And one place uh, I don't want to win in is like this race to the bottom. Like, oh, Nick, I'm more oppressed than you. Like, what are we actually doing? That's the oppression Olympics. Let me, like, right. if that's the case, let me, let me finish last. I don't want to be oppressed anymore. But I, I say this because my liberation is inextricably tied to yours and vice versa. And I, I see you as like to, to tie it into ECE, right? I see you as a, as a window, a mirror, a sliding door into how I want to live my life. So how you show up as a lifelong learner, um, as someone willing to be vulnerable in, inspires me to, to let my emotional guard downs down, guardrails down, right? I think about how I don't want to gaslight children. Um, you know, the other day, you know, a child was, I got a child's name confused. There, there's two new children in the same class, right? And one of them, I was like, oh, hi, my Leah. She was like, that's not my name. And I was like, oh, hey, my love, that's what I meant to say, right? Because I didn't want to feel vulnerable. But then I stopped and I was like, what am I doing? Like the child clearly heard me. And I'm gaslighting this children, this child, right? And that's what people do to me. I don't want to do that, right? So it's catching myself in real time. Now, and I thought about you when that happens. And I, you know, I think I, you inspired me to think outside the binary of also being right and wrong, right? To win or to lose. And just to be okay in that gray area of life. I also listened to some of the ways you approach um, your life, uh, even now more so, through that restorative uh, and healing lens, because you give so much of your energy and your time to others. And like, you also receive a ton of uplifting and reaffirming vibes that sustains you. And you intentionally seek those out, not to be like, hey, I'm, I'm amazing to pat myself on the back, right? But because that's a life source for you. So I'm, I'm working on absorbing like those two or three values of, of your personal journey that I've seen over the years towards liberation. And I'm trying to reflect that back into my life, into my journey. And especially in spaces like this, because we get invited to come out and speak, but we can't actually control who's in these spaces, right? And because of that, I don't get to choose how to, or I, I, I have some anxiety around how do I show up? So I, I have to think twice about how am I being intentional and not just talking to white people in these spaces about this work that we need to do? But also, how am I centering like our people? How am I centering my resources, my resources, which is my spirit in this work? Because you know, racial battle fatigue is real. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and how am I taking the time to be in touch with my mentals? Um, you know, to, to quote Marshawn Lynch, you know, your, your chicken and your mentals, mm -hmm. uh, because I can't give a piece of myself to those um, if I have nothing to give. I can't show up if I have nothing left to give. So yes, we want to teach children um, state standards and how we, uh, and how are we also teaching them about joy, about humanity, about community about relationships, because those are things that are important to the BIPOC community that does not show up on a kindergarten readiness test. Mm -hmm. That's lifelong success that we're looking for. And instead of telling you 
this is how it looks, where are we allowing them to explore what it looks like for them? And we love to say, oh, my space is a safe space. Yes, it is. Is it? Have you actually asked your child if this is a safe space for them? Because I used to you know, think and create all these wonderful and magical spaces. And then they would go play in a cardboard box. And I'd be like, what are you doing? They're like, this is my <laughs> space. And I'm like, oh, I thought, because I made this nice little, cause, you know, cubby for you. I thought this was a safe space, right? So how are we allowing them to decide what a safe space is for them? Because safe is such a relative word. What's safe for you is not safe for me. So, you know, where are we, um, you know, thinking to my colleagues, how are we actually decentering whiteness, right? That white gaze. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. When I say uh, a couple of words and then y'all go, huh? And then I have to stare at that face like, yup. Y'all know damn well what I'm talking about, right? And to, to something that you said earlier, um, Nick, this, uh, this work of childcare ain't about us. We are in the service industry. You know, we got into this mess as a society because we kept putting ourselves first. We kept putting those in power first, their wants, their needs. So how can we decenter that and center the needs and desires of our BIPOC brothers, sisters, and two spirits? And I thought I can stall and have an answer for that second provocation that you threw out, but I do not. So I, well, let me, let me pull it out for you because I think you did, or I believe that you did touch on it. And especially in that last little bit. Right. I, the thing that I, my response, and I mean this intentionally and, and positively, it is not our position as um, cis heterosexual men, potentially with more power in the power dynamics. Right. And especially if you were a cis heterosexual white man, um, it's not necessarily our role to lead the way in charge, but maybe to get out of the way and to make sure that our trans, non-binary, gender fluid allies feel that safe space that hopefully we can create as a collective, right? That has sort of been my, my general approach to it because that's not my identity, right? That's not my experience. Um, just as like the black experience, isn't my black experience, just even if I've had so many friends and, and know just from the peripheral or from the sidelines of what the black experience is, it isn't mine. And it isn't something for me to, to try to, to fix or to try to, to make better. But what I can do is be a, a pillar of support. And that's what I hear you say mm -hmm. in, in, in your, in your answer as you're trying to figure out an answer. You know, I think you, so those pieces, um, I'm, I'm connecting it as, as um, sort of what I, I, what I was thinking, you know? Um, and so for anyone who is on this Zoom call and that does identify as uh, cisgendered heterosexual male. And, and if you don't know what cisgendered means, it means that you uh, conform or that you, is it conform or you like, you, 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 you go by the, the, the anatomical sex and gender that you were assigned at birth. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, I, for those of you on the call that identify as such, and even cisgendered women, um, you know, finding that 
that space within yourself to, um, to, to create safety, right. An, uh, or at least a sense of safety and, and, and being in communication with, um, with uh, trans, non-binary, gender, gender fluid um, folks, and and asking them what they need from you, um, and and make it possible. You know, this has been sort of my experience, and and definitely not a um, a solution, but at least it, it's it's a checkpoint along the journey, and there's still more growth to happen with that. Exactly, it's not just about being an ally in this work. Where are you being an accomplice? Ah, uh, there we go. Yeah, an accomplice means like you rolling up your sleeves and you you not just marching with us and you not just putting a Black Lives Matter sign in your window. Like I know Black Lives Matter, you ain't gotta tell me that. But what I need you to do is, are you with me in these streets? Right? Are you doing? Are you using your platform? Are you using your uh, uh, your privilege? Are you using your voice? Are you using your action? Are you using your financial resources? Right? Are you using all of these different things in order to ensure my liberation? Right? You're not telling me how, uh, how I want to be liberated, but you're seeing and understanding what does that look like for me? And then no matter what, you, you in the thick and you in the mud with me, right? If I ask you to, to if a child calls you up at 2 a.m. and say, hey, I got such and such happening, like I need you to come through and, and support me, that's, that's what we need. We need educators who are going to be like, you know, I'm invested in this black child, I'm not just invested in a paycheck. I'm not just invested in a nine to five. If this child calls me up at 2 a.m. and say, hey, some things are going down, boom, okay, meet me at the corner of such and such, and we gonna do that, right? We gonna, I'm gonna pick you up, I'm gonna love you, I'm gonna support you, because it's, it's more than just, right, uh, um, making sure that you play nicely with one another, right? That's humanity-centric uh, uh, pedagogy. That's what I'm talking about, the love gap, right? We just don't love our children enough. We don't love our black and brown children enough. We'll be right back. These last few months have brought upon a lot of changes in Nick's and Mike's lives. New cities, new jobs, new adventures, us going independent. Shout out to all the peeps who supported us along the way. And now... We have a new email address. You can email us at napcast206 at gmail.com for all your Napcast questions, ideas, and thoughts. And while our new website isn't quite up and running yet, you can still find us where you listen to all your music and podcasts Spotify, Apple Music. Google, and so much more. So what should we chat about next? You tell us. And as always, thank you for listening. Y'all feel me? Y'all with me? All right, it's a little quiet. You know, like, cool, yeah, cool. Feel, yeah, feel free to throw any, any questions in there. And um, yeah. yeah. So I, I feel like, this might be a stretch, right? We the Biggie and Tupac of ECE, right? But but before they had beef, right? Back in the day, <laughs> Are you saying day. we're gonna have beef later on? Hey, who knows? <laughs> right? That's gonna be a lovely story if we do. Right? Yeah. Hey, there's um, a question in the um, chat. If you guys want to respond to it, it's um, it's from Dane. How do you create a community around you to help check your shortcomings, or do you rely on yourself? 
you know, the first thing I say to that is look, look to your left and right. Look who's in your community, right? Look who's in your neighbor. Look who's your neighbor and look who's in your neighborhood. Because that's the two different things, right? My my neighbor, they, you know what I mean? I know them. Hey, what's up? Across the fence. Hey, how you doing? But are they part of your community? Are they part of your neighborhood? Right? That's a system of support that you can call up no matter what. How many of us looks around? And, and this is a self-reflection activity that I do myself, right? If I'm up here talking about supporting the LGBTQIA plus community, how many of my friends are actually LGBTQIA plus identifying? Right? You ain't gotta be friends with everybody, but how can I then support and uplift that community if I ain't got nobody who in my community who looks like that? So what are some things that are coming up for me that are mental, physical, emotional barriers that prevents me from loving them? Because right? there's a whole lot of things that I got to unpack being Afro-Caribbean. The amount of times people, you know, sitting at the table would be like, hey, don't be gay. You can rob a bank, but don't be gay, right? Th those are the narratives that, that were coming up for me growing up. And I have to unpack that each and every single time something becomes foreign to me, something that I, I, oh, I don't, this seems weird or odd to me, right? I have to unpack those layers. And that's how I create that community in order to support them. Because I've done the internal work first. And it's not um, um, that touristic approach of just, well, let me just, you know, put, put them in my community or let me just show up to this valley. But I'm actually living my life for them in service of them. So that, that's something in my head that I think that we need to do in order to create that community first. Yeah, it's um, self-scrutiny is what I'm hearing you say, you know, Mike, and, and we've mentioned it a couple of times about peeling the onion. And when we say onion, it, you know, uh, Mike has a great analogy, of, you know, when you walk into a grocery store, uh, I mean, onions are supposed to make you cry. I'm totally butchering this, aren't I, Mike? But, you know, if we walk into a grocery store and we walk in near the onions, they would make us cry. But that's not true. It's once you start peeling back the onions and then, you know, the enzymes and, and the sulfates, I think it is like that get into your 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 membranes and start making you cry. Um, it's the same as we start like peeling back our own personal layers of our what are our family histories and stories what are the histories and stories of our community and their neighbors like Mike is talking about? And once we start getting deeper and deeper, we start getting at the layers of what are our core values. And even sometimes those core values are ones that we um, we didn't know were there, right? Like it's uh, our biases, essentially, that then start to take root when they're unchecked to become prejudices. And if we don't put them in check, amongst ourselves first and scrutinize it and ask why and say no, like we were saying at the top of the hour, um, then, then a lot of times we can't, it's hard for us to put ourselves into check to figure out what our shortcomings are. And, and really um, when I, when I see that, uh, you know, Dane, when you said ch check your shortcomings, it's acknowledging it and holding yourself accountable to what the shortcomings are, but also relying on curiosity rather than certainty right like remaining in that that gray area of like you know i don't have an answer for this i may never have an answer for this and that is just fine i'm just gonna be and and, and when we start doing that and emoting that and modeling that i feel like other people generally fall along and they're like because it's you know we might classify these people as like easygoing and, and there's an energy to that, that a lot of us are uh, a 
attracted to. And, and when we go about that process, it becomes infectious, right? Joy is infectious. These healthy habits are infectious. And especially when we start um, balancing out uh, curiosity over certainty. And, and when you do have that internal practice more and more, then it's finding like-minded individuals to do that with each other. But also to give yourself grace and patience and understanding that this is um, that this takes time. It moves at a glacial pace. Why, why do you love the job that makes little money? Well, I mean, and it's interesting because like there's um, like even now with the great what they call the great resignation, right, that we're going through. A lot of people are leaving their six figure jobs and they are pursuing things that actually make them happy. And I, I love that. And, and again, I, I don't see this as a job. It's my art. It's my it's my lifestyle. It's what I, you know as my parents say, it's like, it was your calling. And I'm like, sure, whatever, (laughs) you know, it's something that I was just really drawn to. Um, I love people. I love being in relationship. I find relationship to be um, valuable and I'd rather be rich in relationship than money. And that kind of ties into another question I had for you just in general, like what was the biggest surprise that you faced Nick when you came out of Wazoo? Um, into the field? Like, what was your, I guess, your moment of enlightenment or, or your biggest surprise, uh, especially now as you ventured from educator to director? Uh, I think, honestly, that people wanted to get my perspective on things. You know, everyone everyone had, a, like, gone through the process of of seeing early childhood education, like, through the lens of your, your typical stereotypical teacher, which is traditionally has been a woman and, and in most cases, a white woman or in, uh, depending on where you, where you live, a woman of color and not to take away from those experiences, but it's the same sort of lens applied all the time, just as like business is generally seen or, or even the tech industry has generally been seen through the lens of, of, of a white man. And so, you know, it, 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 for me, when people were um, asking me how I felt about things, and that's where I started finding my voice because I was wanting to really uh, to, to see what that was, but didn't feel like my space, and especially here in Seattle. And, and you knew like, or even, you know, I mean, you came to Hilltop and I know you were like, Hey man, this place is really white. I mean, it was really, it was even wider before. <laughs> and so, you know, me being who I am and what I look like, it was sort of, um, you know, uh, a little bit of imposter syndrome, like, you know, am am I, is my value and my thoughts, is it going to, is it going to cut it here? Is it going to be valued? Is it going to be, is it worth people's time? Am I worth people's time? And when people started asking me for my insights and whatnot, then that was a really big surprise. And, you know, from educator to director, that um, has been, and I'm only into the directorship, like what a little over a year and a half now. Um, I, I thought it would be easier for me to get others to rally around my ideas, especially having been a teacher for so long. And I thought it would be a lot easier to get buy-in, but you know, every circumstance for every school is different. And even though 
I come with a great amount of knowledge and experience of knowing what teachers want. Um, I, I miss the mark completely sometimes. And so, um, but the thing that I've learned the greatest is the value of slowing down and listening. I think I'm a better listener now, like in the last year and a half or so than like I ever have been. You know, they, they always say the grass ain't green on the other side. Right. You know, it, it was, that was definitely my surprise too, as I moved from classroom to management you know, I found myself, especially early on, I was like, well, directors don't understand what it's like to be on the ground floor. And now I'm on the other side. I'm like, well, educators just don't understand. And I'm like thinking back to Will, uh, Will Smith's song, what parents don't understand, I'm trying not to age myself. Um, <laughs> but, you know, maybe maybe that could be the remake since, I mean, Hollywood is not really messing with him anymore, which just proves anti-Blackness happening in our society you know, especially when you got like Woody Allen out here, but I'm a digress. I'm not going to go down that one. Right. Um, but I think the biggest surprise that I, I, I found is that the infighting that happens within our own sector. Right. And like I just said, I was guilty of it. Right. But we need to really work to better understand the positions of each other. I don't think management is, is sitting there trying to intentionally sabotage like the work of educators. I don't, they're not sitting there in the office like, ha, 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 let me, let's figure out a way to make your life more miserable because at the end of the day, we just gonna hear those complaints in our ear and I don't wanna hear that. So, and then on the flip side, uh, you know, I don't think educators really grasp how intentional um, it, how intentionality in a director position looks like um, when you have so many different things to, to juggle. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think there needs to be more intentional spaces created to challenge and to interrogate each other's work. Right. And not just the educator uh, um, uh, management like binary. Let's talk about that with our custodial staff. Right. The people who are actually keeping us safe and healthy from COVID. Right? How are we also bringing them into the fold and honoring their funds of knowledge? Right, because they might not be an educator per se, but they might work with, they might have children, right? So how can we scaffold in their knowledge? And you know, you don't have to necessarily agree with each other because you know we we are all here trying to improve children's life within the system we operate in, and these structures aren't always ideal. Adding one child to a classroom might help make more breathing room within the budget, but it might push educators over the edge, right? And these are complex issues. Everyone needs to kind of wrap their minds around and think more than just what's in it for me. And my hope is that if we can create more spaces like this, we can understand all that goes into our work. And we can also look at um, our values and think about what games uh, and, and what are our hopes that, or what are, what are the games we're willing to play? What are the hoops we are willing to jump through? Um, and which ones are we okay pushing back on? Saying, hey, you know, actually that doesn't work for us in, in, in our work. You know, because I never met an educator who was happy at just being an educator, right? <laughs> we are change agents and we can use that to demand our systems become more responsive to us because at the end of the day, we hold the power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. And, you know, I like the idea of 
and this is something I'm like slowly easing into my school of like sort of a co-collaboration of what I, what I do for my educators in my school. Um, and, you know, because if their job, if they feel like their job is easy and supported, then mine is, you know, if, if they're happy, I'm happy. And, um, and yeah, they, it, it's kind of, it's that like whole uh, swan on the pond kind of metaphor where as a director and even as teachers, like we're gracefully gliding up top, but underneath the water, our feet are like just kicking furiously. And, and a lot of the times people on the outside don't see that. And, and sometimes they don't need to. Um, I like this question though, that just came in. What are our educational values? Uh, do you want to go or do you want me to go? um uh, you got something off the top of your head yeah um well I mean it's something that you and I are actively working on and it's you know co helping others co-construct spaces for transformative anti-racist education um social justice education is the core core of my belief and um who I am and I believe that, and, and again, I would say there's that, and then a close second or accompaniment to that is that children are more than capable of having those conversations, and they are more than capable of being in dialect and dialogue, or they're more more than capable of being in dialogue and conversation with um, about these heavy topics that that are often um, make us adults uncomfortable. And, and we need to value children and families as collaborators and contributors to the educational system. Um, yeah, picking back off of that, it's, it's, for me, one of my values is talking about anti-Blackness, right, and Native invisibility. Um, because the reason why we talk about that is because, and I'm going to quote Andre Lord right, is that there's no such thing as a single issue struggle because we do not live in a single issue life. So meaning, once again, Nick, your liberation is inextricably tied to mine and vice versa. And I think about how everybody wants to be Black, right, until you got to be Black, right? Like, a couple of people said that, Kendrick said it, but he used a couple of different words, but we're not going to get into that right now, right? It's a family-friendly event. Um, <laughs> meaning society is okay being influenced by Black brilliance, by using Black ideas, by appropriating Black culture, by building an entire country off the backs of Blacks. You know, I think back to the Tian laws in the 1700s, right, where, we, where they created a law so that Black women, Black femmes, they didn't have to, or, or they had to cover up their heads with headscarves. You know, you know what that did? Right, y'all made it colorful, y'all put beads in it, and then white women try to copy in that, right? I think about Britney Spears, right, and NSYNC, their songs, Baby One More, Hit Me One More Time, Bye Bye Bye. They all have black choreograph, right? So everybody wants to be black until you gotta be black, until it comes to uplifting and supporting them, until it comes to loving them, until it comes to reparations, until you're Trayvon Martin and you're buying Skittles and an Arizona iced tea. Until you're that black eighth grader in New Jersey, a couple, probably a month ago now, who was handcuffed by his white counterparts, was placed gently on the couch. 
so part of being one of my values is that part of being an anti-racist educator and human is understanding that yes you did not create anti-black bias but through your positionality of power you still organize it in order to build your social cultural political power over others not with others over others so really to address anti-blackness in your lives and more, more specifically related to your work with young children, in order to teach black children, you first must know black history. In order to know black history, you must also address the anti-blackness you harbor inside yourselves. And it, might, and it manifests in so many different ways that you don't even know, like we ain't got enough time to talk about that. Did you, do you see this, uh, this question is, uh, that's getting my wheels turning. What, where's the silver lining between child development practices and cultural child rearing? I think that, that could be, that could be a whole nap cast. <laughs> um, uh, it, it, you know, I, so we say parents are the first teacher, right? Mm-hmm. Or parents are the first teacher. That means if culture, if spanking is in their culture, who are, who is it for us to be like, hey, don't do that, right? Because I, I and I'm not either or, right? I'm like, I'm playing devil's advocate. I'm in the middle. I'm Switzerland or Sweden. I don't know, right? But I'm right in the middle. I'm saying who, what gives us the right to be like, to tell people don't raise your child like that? Because maybe spanking is something that Black families have to do so their child doesn't get killed. How do we think about that? So instead of coming with judgment and saying, don't do this, because if I told you don't do this, what are you going to do, right? Nick, you're a contrarian, right? You're just going to do, you're going to run off and do it anyways. So instead of coming with a, with a, a judgment of saying, don't do this, right? How about we work for understanding? We invite them to explain what, what is their position? What are you thinking? You know, uh, how can I support you in maybe finding more um, conducive ways in order to support this child, right? Th- think about that flip. That's a strength-based flip. Rather than saying, oh, your child has weaknesses, look at it as saying, oh, your child has needs. How can I support them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, I think, I think it's you know, at a baseline value, one thing when it comes to child development and cultural rearing, parenting practices, one thing that we should all hold in mind is is an assumption that all human brains have the same potential. And, you know, it, um, in the United States, there's a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of erasure of what the native and indigenous practices of child rearing are. So it's hard for us to like, really pinpoint a lot of specific cultural things with that. And even for, um, and, and I would say even for, cause you know, black people are indigenous as well, right? Brought over here to the United States, um, displaced from their own homeland. And, and a lot of the, a lot of their culture is all uh, essentially wiped out as well. So it's hard to pinpoint what exactly constitutes an accurate cultural parenting or rearing child rearing practice. And so we're, 
right now in this time of age where we need to reconcile what are those things and at a baseline value, what are those systems that have contributed to that erasure? Um, and really thinking about, yeah, is I mean, is it appropriate to do X, Y, and Z? Is, do the circumstances like actually call for something like spanking? Uh, what do we know that, what does that do for humans all across the board of racial and socioeconomic status? Um, and so that's where we, you know, I think there's still a lot of work to, um, to be done in that. And I don't know if we necessarily have a direct answer to that question quite yet, but that is something I'm, I took notes on that I'm like going to look more into and stew on. Um, thinking about how in the native community, right. Mm-hmm. Um, swaddling. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah. So like, so something I've been talking about is, you know, it, when we look at child development, what do all most of the child development theorists have in common? They're all old white men that come from a Eurocentric view, right? And so this idea that we are having children of color and what Mike and I particularly hone in on Native and Black children, we are um, putting them up against a sort of Eurocentric view of what we call developmentally appropriate. And it's not to say that their work is totally inaccurate and should be thrown out, but it's something to just keep in mind as a question because, you know, typically what we would consider a milestone for a a typical developing baby or child, young human is, you know, they would be doing some head lifting when they're having tummy time on the ground. They might start to self-soothe by putting in, put uh, by sucking on their thumb. And we see these as appropriate um, uh, milestones and important milestones. However, in the Navajo tribe, and other tribes of the Southwest and and many other tribes who had cradle boards for their babies, um, a a child may actually not, might not start walking until like the age of like two and a half, depending on how big that baby is and and their matriarchal figure isn't going to carry them around anymore. But they're often constrained, tied to to a board onto um, onto their matriarchal figure's back. And, uh, you know, and when I heard this and I joked with uh, the Navajo woman who told me about this, she's like, but that didn't stop Navajo people from learning to walk still, you know, it's not like they were a tribe that didn't walk and didn't have other means of self-soothing. So it's, you know, I think it's having some perspective on what are we considering uh, a milestone and and developmentally appropriate versus what is um, what, you know, maybe generationally ingrained into people sometimes. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think just kind of being, just keeping the, those, um, keeping those perspectives in mind. There's another question in the chat about how can we support or acknowledge children's emotional slash mental health while providing education? Yeah, I mean, that's social emotional learning right there. You know, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Um, it's, uh, I like the idea of co-regulating, of like where you're sitting with a child or, or really anybody at any age and just acknowledging and affirming what it looks like they're, they're feeling and what they're displaying and being a, uh, a collaborator and trying to figure out a solution if 
they want a solution because even I've experienced children don't even, sometimes they just want to be heard. They don't want to be fixed. You know, they just want to cry. They just want to let it out. And I, I believe a lot of the times the fallacy in teaching the sort of falsehood is that as teachers, we get bought into this idea that we have to fix for a teachable moment, right? We have to um, sort of correct or provide something that will move a child out of a feeling. But what happens if we just let them be with the feeling and, and really get to know who they are in that feeling? Um, but also for them to know that they've got someone who has their back. What were you gonna say, Mike? No, two things that come, from, come up for me is how um, racism manifests in ECE in, in a multitude of different ways. Um, the first one that comes to mind and how this you know, ties into um, children's mental and emotional health is because like linguistically, linguistic racism, which isn't something that we typically think about because all the times in which we're told racism it shows up, it is just like, oh, it's physical, right? It's this action that happened here. No, we are killing children's souls. We are killing children's spirituality. We're killing children's emotional well-being. Not out here in these streets, don't worry, those are happening too, but we're killing them in our classroom environments, in our learning environments, right? So I think about linguistically, how are we being intentional and in protecting black language and not defenders of white comfort, right? Because standard English is a myth, right? There's Afro-American vernacular, there's Spanglish, right? We can go on and on and on. So how are we creating tests? If you know a child speaks Spanglish at home, how are we creating a test that, that allows them to show and demonstrate the competencies like that, rather than saying, oh, well, they don't talk and, um, and use adjective and adverbs. I, you know what I mean? I'm decades later and I still don't know what an adverb is. So I was going to say, I was like, what's an adverb? <laughs> exactly. So why are we so obsessed with that? All right. Um, and, and really, why are we obsessed with normalizing white ways of speaking? Right, because when we do that, it justifies linguistic discrimination on the basis of race. And then the next thing I want to bring up is how we physically police children's bodies by giving them no say or no agency uh, over themselves and moving them. Right? We often go over and say, well, "I'm going to move your body over here because you're hitting them." We never give them the opportunity to negotiate. Um, and I'm going to echo. Um, or bring up my homegirl, our homegirl, Ijima Jordan, who's down in the Hollywood area, right? She has a, a, um, a community called Police Free ECE that I'm, I think everyone should go check that out. Maybe Nick, you can throw that into the chat, just her name, as well as Police Free ECE. But essentially she says that policing children's body happens more on children of color than on white children, right? So children have a right to remain children. And punishment, whether it's in the form of in-school suspension, out-of-school suspension, right? And in-school suspension, that's, that could also just be like, hey, bring them to the, the, the principal's office, right? That doesn't get recorded on, on our documents that we have to submit to state governments. That's a form of suspension. That's a form of capital punishment for young children. Right? It's a separation of, of, of children of color in groups. It's isolating seats, it's ignoring them when their hands are raised when you ask the question, right? Oh, does anyone know this? But I'm actually going to look at your hand and I'm going to look at someone else and engage them, others. 
know, otherwise. So that's policing uh, of children's bodies, of children's minds, of children's souls. And that has detrimental effect on how they show up and how they process. Um, another thing that was coming up for me when thinking about, you know, uh, supporting children's emotional and mental health while providing education is, you know, education. It's interesting, right? Like, so when I read that question, and I might be wrong here, um, that it seems to me then the perception of education is ABCs, math, these, these sort of more traditionally academic things. And a lot of the times we're telling children to put their emotions to the side. But if you're emotionally distraught and you're not taught how to how to cope and how to be resilient and how to move along in relationships, then how can you really truly focus on those traditionally school readiness aspects? And so I think that is the important piece of early childhood. And let's remember that early childhood is pre uh, is birth through, or I guess we should say like one years old to, to third grade. So what would it look like if during that whole time up into third grade, children were being encouraged to build on social emotional capacities, right? Rather than preschool becoming the new kindergarten and kindergarten becoming the new first grade, what would our world look like? How, what would our emotional intelligence of men, bring it back to this conversation of men in ECE, what would that look like if, if more men we're able to model to young children emotional vulnerability and emotional self-care. Uh, in one of our napcasts, I talk about this, Mike, that like I have a hard time crying because I had been ingrained with big boys don't cry, right? Especially growing up in sort of the Latino culture where there's a lot of machismo. It's like you don't cry, you stuff it away. And how emotionally stifling that is. And, 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 you know, I, in the napcast, I mentioned like for me to exercise, to break that muscle memory of not, of stopping myself to cry. Cause it feels like a muscle. As soon as I feel the tears come in, that muscle just activates and I can't get it out and it feels stuck. So I watch silly YouTube videos of like soldiers returning home and their dogs reacting and that breaks me down. And I, and I'm trying to like, okay, that's the muscle okay, here's how I learned to like, let it go, you know, kind of thing. Or even speaking of let it go, watching Frozen gets oh, me choked God. up. <laughs> always and, on Frozen. <laughs> and I love that movie. I don't know why. I, you know, I, I think it's the snowboarder in me. But it, you know, it. Uh, I have to like really embrace those moments so I can just get it going. And, and then, you know, modeling that when I uh, had spent most of my time with toddlers, you know, when the, when, when boys would cry and just being like, come here, my little buddy, like, just go ahead and cry. It's all right. You know, just keep it going. Cause I don't want them to grow, to develop that muscle, you know, and that's one muscle I don't want anybody to have to develop. And so this is one of those important aspects of, of, ha of, of having men in, in, in early childhood education is that we can, we can, again, provide that counter narrative that you had mentioned earlier. You know, and the proverbial question that we always get, which ties into another question that we got at the chat around why most of the people that apply for child development are women as a, compared to men, right? And the proverbial question that we always get is how can we get more men or males 
um, especially those of color, into early childhood education, right? Which I'm even going to push back to you, Nick, and say that, like, what if we said no to it just being one-year-old to to uh, to nine-year-old? What if we looked at it and thought of it as prenatal mm-hmm. all the way up to uh, um, third grade or nine-year-olds, right? Yeah. Um, but instead of asking that proverbial question of how can we get more men or males or males of color in EC, um, let, let's, let's shift that, right? Um, what is something that, because you had, you know what I mean? You're in year 15. You could have left any time. What made you stay, though? Uh, I think it's the encouragement, you know, um, from people. And, and then realizing that I... Um, that seeing how other people valued me and viewed me is a privilege. And how can I pass that along? Right. How can I help uplift others? How can I hopefully um, be to like a, a sort of like a model, like, uh, you know, a lot of my other, my colleagues who um, world forum foundation, you know, the men in early childhood um, sector, you know, all those guys are um, about to retire and whatnot, but I'm like the only one of color and they're all, uh, they're all old white guys. Um, and, you know, the other thing though, I like to, to say, especially for men of color is that a lot of us have a leg up in, in the sort of experience of raising and being with young children. Cause a lot, especially for myself, I mean, I practically raised my little brother. And then if you weren't necessarily the older sibling, Maybe you had an older sibling who was a brother who kind of led the way. And so really the experience of being with kids is um, really ingrained with us. And we have a lot of experience with it uh, as, as young children and adolescents. And so, you know, but as we get older, there's that, there's that chance to be able to, um, to, to hone it in into certain pedagogies and philosophies and, and really find a, uh, the true passion with it. And I think, it, it, you know, there's two things that are coming to mind is one, it's sad when people, I'm now at the point where I find it sad that people are like, wow, that's really great. You do that, Nick, or even Mike, like, wow, we just don't see that. And it's really great. You do that. And it's like, yeah, I know that it would be nice to like, not hear that anymore. Uh Um, and then the other, the other thing is, um, we can use our platform to, cause when people are like, oh yeah, oh, well you must just play with kids all day or like, oh, that's cute. I'm like, well, I'm like, you think it's cute? Spend eight, nine hours a day with a toddler. You can then tell me it's cute, (laughs) you know, and then tell me that like, you know, that this is fun or whatever. I mean, it is fun, but it's challenging. Right. And, and that's the thing is you get to exercise, uh, all three aspects that make us human, the mind, body, and soul, you really get those exercised um, really, really well. And, 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 um, and then also, you know, to the comment of like, well, you get to play with their kids. It's like, yeah, that's how people learn, right? Like you don't expect a musician to just sit and like read piano music or the the treble clef and then all of a sudden they're going to know how to translate that into an instrument no they have to play right and that's a natural way of learning for for us and all mammals really is playing and it's an interesting fact that like 
human beings spend out of out of all the all the animals in, in the animal kingdom, we spend the longest in our childhood than any other animal. So how important is this for us to, to really capitalize on this time that we spend with children? Um, I don't know if I answered your question, but. Sure did. And it gave yeah. me a lot, of, a lot of things to think about um, because now I'm like, yeah, why did I stay? Right. Because there's been a lot of times I wanted to leave over the years and what comes up, it's just like how race lighting, right. Which is racialized narrative. It's a, it's a racialized form of gaslighting. If everyone's not familiar with that. And I, as you were talking, I'm like, damn, I am tired. I'm tired, 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 tired. Just tired. Whoa, whoa, just tired. And, and uh, being asked my opinion and then being told, well, we shouldn't be talking about that. <laughs> or no, no, that doesn't happen. Or that has never happened here. I'm like, you sure? Are you positive that that has never happened here? Hmm. Interesting. So if we aren't here to change the world, then why are we in EC? Why are you here with us on a Tuesday night? So it's the same thing that makes me want to leave so badly. It's actually the same thing that makes me want to stay. I must be like, what is that, a massive? I don't know. Maybe that's not the word, right? I saw some eyebrows going, right? Maybe that's not the word, but y'all know what I'm trying to say, right? <laughs> Create, you know, I, so I think about how are we creating opportunities or access to resources for staff, for board members, for community members to fully participate within the organization by providing them with childcare, by providing them with transportation, by providing them with stipends, by compensating staff for the hours that they actually truly work. That's what I'm here for. Calling out class oppression and how it may land on, on some staff and how some board members during meetings or during some other activities. Like that's the work I'm trying to do. Centering the experiences of, of the lower to working class members as we develop and implement curriculum is why I'm here. So yeah, it's tiring, but where else would I rather be, baby? Like, come on now. <laughs> Let's see. There's All right, guys, we have about five more minutes. So you want to kind of wrap it up. It's hard. Everybody's really enjoying it. <laughs> um, is there a question we might have missed? I'm not seeing any. So maybe it's the consent one. I saw something about consent. It was a comment, but I love that. Hmm. Yeah, and I saw like, what is anti-bias uh, education? I think they were asking. And there's four goals to anti-bias education. There's a lot of resources out on, on there if you just Google it. But the one that we, uh, the goals are identity. So teachers and children will um, nurture their identities within the classroom. And, you know, children like d demonstrate their self-awareness and confidence with that. Number two, and I'm just like nutshell in these um, diversity, um, you know, teachers and uh, will promote. And I'm also reading this off of NIAC's website. <laughs> will uh, will will promote each child's comfortable and empathetic interaction with people from different backgrounds. Number three is justice that teachers will foster each child's capacity to critically identify bias and and will nurture each child's empathy. 
Um, and the fourth is uh, activism. I think that's our favorite, Mike, is where we uh, teachers start helping children realize that they can actually speak up, right? And that they can, they can take action, that they do hold power, that they themselves also are leaders. Yeah, and, and the, the challenge is, or the provocation is, how do I take those goals and then how do I elevate it through an anti-racist lens, through a liberation lens? So we need to understand where do we lie on this white silence continuum, right? Yes. Not, I know the word has white in it, but we are all victims of white supremacy, right? There are times in which things come up and I am... I am complicit in the system, even as a racialized individual, because I've been taught to be complicit. I've been taught to be silent. So where am I on that fair learning growth zone? And how can I get to that growth zone? And also know that just because I get to that growth zone and I feel really confident speaking on one thing, that doesn't mean I stay there, right? Because I can still be socialized into thinking um, and to going back. So don't think of it as a linear line, but think about this as a journey. And how do mm. I, how do we transfer in and out into these spaces? But then how do we stay there? Right. Yeah. It's an ebb and flow, right? You're coming and going. So I don't know. I'm just all about how do we continue to think about how are you actively processing um, or how are, how are you engaging in the active process of identifying um, and eliminating racism by changing the system, not necessarily the overarching system, because that's a, that's a mammoth of a beast. That's not saying that we shouldn't try, right? Because I'm going to go out swinging if that's the case. But how do we change the system that, that we're involved in? The system of how we operate our classrooms, the system of how we teach one another, the system of how we, we live in society with one another. How do we challenge our policies, right? Not just our, our what's in our handbook, but our classroom policies, because we have those unwritten rules in that too. And then lastly, how do we challenge our practices and our attitudes um, so that power is redistributed um, and shared equitably? And what you're reminding me, Mike, is we have this power in early childhood education and education as a whole to model, again, what we want the world to, to be like, right? It starts with us. And, and, and we have this, and, and it's not, you know, as cheesy and corny as it sounds, but we do have this tremendous impact and power to change the world. And it starts with how we model our time and relationship with the children, with their families, and with each other as colleagues and friends. We would love to continue to keep talking, but I'm supposed to be at a wedding. So I'm definitely going to end the Sunday setting. So I definitely got to run and I, you know, I got my party shoes on, but we would absolutely love to come back if that's something that. I oh, we would love that. Yes. <laughs> um, thank you so much for spending the evening with us. Um, it looks like everybody is just loving this. Um, I think I'll put a link for the podcast in the chat. Um, so for those who haven't had the privilege of listening to it yet, thank you so much everybody for coming out. Um, we have a little evaluation form that we'd love for you to fill out to give us some feedback and that we'll share that with them. Looks like they've already put the, the podcast in. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you again. Thanks um, for having us. Thank, thank you, everybody. Have fun at your wedding. Good night, <laughs> <laughs> Good night everybody. Bye-bye.